If you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them out and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 2 to 10. This is our preaching passage for the evening. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 2 to 10. If you would remain standing as you are able for the reading of God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning at the end of verse 2. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord and our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, what a glorious truth that we just sung that our worth is not in what we own, but in the costly wounds that flowed at the cross of Jesus Christ. We want that. We want our hearts to believe that truth this evening, that to live is Christ and to die is gain, that the greatest treasure we have in this world is knowing Christ and him crucified. We pray now as we come to your word that you would sanctify us, that you would change us more and more into Christ's likeness, that we would be a living, breathing, walking proof of this passage, that we would be godly with great contentment in you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. When my wife, Shelby, was Just graduating from college, she started to get stomach aches. She would eat a meal, stomach ache. She would eat her favorite pot stickers, stomach ache. Giordano's, stomach ache. Although I suspect that most of us get stomach aches when we eat Giordano's. And so... Because of the constant stomach aches, Shelby went to the GI doctor. They ran tests. They did blood work. She even got a colonoscopy. And at the end of the day, 
the doctor told her that they couldn't find out what was wrong with her. The doctor just said, eat more fiber and take Imodium for three months. The doctor couldn't figure out the root cause of Shelby's sickness, of her stomach aches, so they tried their best to take care of her symptoms. But the stomach aches continued and continued, and so Shelby decided to get a second opinion. She went to another doctor, and when that doctor began to look at her blood tests, the doctor turned to Shelby and said, well, looking at your blood tests, you're really close to being celiac. You should stop eating gluten and dairy for a while and and see if that helps. And so that's what Shelby did. And guess what? She got better. Her stomach aches went away. Why? Well, because she was able to not just address the symptoms of her illness, her stomach aches, but she was able to get at the root cause, gluten intolerance. It's easy to identify the symptom of a sickness. Symptoms are easy to see, but root causes often lie below the surface. And in our text this evening, Paul wants to show Timothy and show us that when the body of Christ is sick, when the body of Christ has the stomach aches of outward sin. Those are just symptoms. When we see the symptoms of ungodliness in the church, when we see the symptoms of fighting and quarreling between brothers and sisters in Christ, when we see the symptom of people departing the faith, we might be tempted to say, that's the problem. That's the root cause. But Paul says, look closer, Timothy. Let me give you a second opinion. All that ungodliness in the church is a symptom. And Paul wants to tell us the root cause. And the root cause is covetousness. Covetousness, it's an old-timey Bible word, but I think it's a great word because it's precise, Covetousness, it's wanting what you don't have. Covetousness, it's the desire that creeps into our hearts when we say that we want what they have. It's when your little child or grandchild looks at the toy that his big brother has and says, mine. It's when you look at your boss or neighbor across the street and say, in your heart, I want what she has. Covetousness happens when we aren't happy anymore, when our friends succeed, but we wish that we were being up there honored and appreciated. Covetousness. In other words, it's envy, it's discontentment, it's lust, it's jealousy. When it applies to money, we call it greed. Covetousness is wanting what you don't have, and it's the root cause of so much of the division and personal pain that we experience in the church. And Paul wants to teach Timothy and teach us tonight that the medicine, the prescription, the cure to the illness of covetousness in Christ's body is contentment. Contentment. Contentment is wanting what you have. Contentment is being satisfied with your circumstance. 
Contentment is sitting in your little three-bedroom, one-bath home right next door to a mansion and being completely happy with the home that you have. Contentment looks like a church that doesn't compete for the spotlight but genuinely rejoices when other people succeed. In other words, contentment is like gratitude. It's peace. It's being happy with your lot in life. And Paul's whole message to Timothy is this. Cure covetousness with contentment. Cure covetousness with contentment. In our series through 1 Timothy, Paul has been trying to show us that there is a clear link between what we believe and what we do. That sound doctrine produces sound living. We are the church of the gospel. And when the true teaching of the gospel is believed and known, it creates a person who is Christ-like and godly. Christ-like and godly. And Paul is writing to Timothy to teach him that when he sees someone who is teaching a false doctrine or is living an ungodly life, something is wrong, not just on the outside, but something is wrong in their hearts. They have what Augustine calls disordered desires. And so in our passage, Paul says to Timothy, you can see it in your Bibles in verse two and three, he says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine, a false doctrine, and does not agree with the sound words, literally the healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, Paul is saying that if you come across a person who is teaching a gospel that does not agree with the sound, healthy teachings of Christ that create godliness, that is the symptom. Paul says, let me tell you what's really going on in their heart and in their soul. Let's pop the hood and I will give you the root cause. Paul says that we in our churches and in our own hearts, we cure covetousness with contentment. And in the rest of our passage, Paul gives us three reasons why. The first reason we should cure covetousness with contentment is because covetousness destroys community. Covetousness destroys community. You can see this in your Bibles in verses four and five. Paul writes, If someone teaches a different doctrine, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So there were some people in the church at Ephesus who believed that godliness was a means to financial gain. That there were people in the church who thought that you could get rich by being a pastor. If anyone thinks that today, joke's on them. I have to tell you being a pastor is not a viable get rich quick plan. But there were teachers in the church at Ephesus that were acting godly on the outside because they thought that they could get rich by teaching in the church. It's most likely that these preachers, these teachers, were preaching and expecting their listeners to pay them in exchange for their wisdom. 
That was very common in the first century. But notice their heart. It's also likely they were showing up to church asking this question in their hearts. How can this church community benefit me? How can being godly benefit me? They were doing the spiritual math in their head and seeing if godliness had a good return on investment. And so Paul says that that person is, strong words, puffed up with conceit, puffed up with pride, and really they don't understand anything. Paul says they have, verse 4, unhealthy cravings for controversy and for quarrels about words. Literally, they like to have word battles with other people. These people were competitive in the church. They were looking to one-up someone, craving controversy. This is in direct contrast, you might remember from 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul teaches that an elder, on the other hand, should not be quarrelsome, that an elder should not be a recent convert, lest he become puffed up with conceit, same phrase, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. It's likely that these teachers were new converts. Notice what these unhealthy cravings produce. They produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, a heart that is consumed with covetousness, looks at others with suspicion. It's a me versus them mentality. What else does this heart produce? Verse five continues. This craving produces constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. These kinds of heart postures produce constant friction among people. Notice these two phrases, deprived in mind, depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. They are depraved and deprived. Real compliments. They're not compliments. (laughs) Paul is trying to show Timothy that, that when your heart becomes gripped by wanting what other people have, there's something lacking in your discipleship. There's something lacking in our understanding of the gospel. It's a pretty serious thing, covetousness. And Paul says that we should cure and kill this desire in our hearts because it destroys community. Notice the focus of Paul in verses four and five are on the way that covetousness hurts other people. Greed isn't just a heart sin. It doesn't just affect you personally, but it overflows into our personal relationships and it destroys the unity of the body of Christ. It hurts those around us. In 2016, a movie called The Founder came out, which told the story of the fast food restaurant McDonald's and how it began. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert although the McDonald's story is pretty well known. In that movie, the founder, Michael Keaton, plays Ray Kroc, who was a milkshake machine salesman who discovered this little burger joint in San Bernardino, California, who could give you a burger, fries, milkshake from order to pickup in less than 30 seconds. Ray Kroc was amazed and went into partnership with the McDonald brothers. 
But as the franchise got up and running and they were starting to make some money, Ray Kroc asked the McDonald brothers if they wanted to expand. No, the McDonald's said. They were content in just owning their little burger joint there in San Bernardino. And in a powerful scene in the movie, Ray is sitting in the kitchen with his first wife, Ethel. It's dark. And Ray looks at his wife, and his wife looks at him in the midst of a strained marriage. She asks him, when is enough ever going to be enough for you? And he responded, honestly, probably never. Why should I settle down when other men won't? And it's sad. Ray went on to destroy his relationship with the McDonald brothers, fighting with lawyers over the rights to the business. Ray divorced his first wife and then another wife before his third marriage. Covetousness took hold of his heart. And in so many ways, it destroyed the community that was around him. Maybe you know stories of people in your own life who have had their heart captive to greed and envy and covetousness, who have stepped on the little guy to make a buck, or have hurt their family, their church, their coworkers to get ahead. And Paul is telling us this evening, don't you see? Don't you see how this competitive heart destroys relationships? So often, we think in our culture that ambition and competition are good things because it's a dog-eat-dog world out there and you have to fight for yourself. And that works in the world, but in the church? The church is the body of Christ. The church is built on the truth of God's love. The church is founded on 1 Timothy 3.16, the mystery of true godliness which has been revealed in Jesus Christ. God wants us to see this evening that wanting what other people have, coming to church to be served, to get something from others, that mindset, that heart posture destroys and threatens the unity of our church. James puts it this way in James chapter four. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and do not obtain, so you fight and quarrel. At the root of every church conflict is the fact that that we just don't get our own way. We, we covet and don't get what we want, and so we fight with other people. And Paul is telling us that the church of Jesus Christ is called to be cooperative, not competitive. Can I get an amen? How competitive are we this evening? Do you compare yourself with other people in our church? Are you tempted to size up the room and, and look around and, And think to yourself, because we'd never say this out loud. 
But think to yourself, I'm better off than them. Or God, I wish I had the job that he had. God, I wish that that I had the picture-perfect family like they seem to have. God, I wish I was as healthy as they are. Or I struggle with this one. God, I wish that I was as good of a preacher as he is. Paul is saying that those thoughts destroy Christ's body and, and like surgery, we have to cut out covetousness, cure it in our hearts and in our church because it destroys community. Well, Paul gives us a second reason to cure covetousness. Paul says that we should cure covetousness with contentment because God has given us contentment in Christ. God has already given us contentment in Christ. We see this in verses six to eight. Paul writes, but godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Paul, I'm sure with a twinkle in his, hot, in his eye makes a sort of pun where he, he says, literally, some people imagine that godliness is a means to gain, meaning financial gain. And then he says, but it is great gain, godliness with contentment. He, he switches the order. And actually he says that there is great spiritual gain in being godly, that there is great gain in being happy with what we have in God. And then he gives us the reason for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. Paul gives us this eternal perspective saying, look, you came out of your mother's womb naked, penniless, with nothing to your name. That's a humbling thought. And Paul says, that's the same way you will enter eternity. You, you can't take anything on this earth with you. What a great reminder for us. Preachers love to say it this way, but it's true. Have you ever seen a U-Haul behind a hearst? Have you ever seen a U-Haul on its way to the gravesite? No. We, we work so hard in our careers and in our jobs to, to save up, to have enough for retirement and a safe future, and, and that's good and wise. But you can't take it with you. Paul is wanting us to lift our eyes from the things of this world and to fix our eyes on Christ who has purchased for us everything that we need. Romans 8.32, one of my favorites, says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he, also with, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? These false teachers in Ephesus didn't see in their heart of hearts that God has so satisfied us in Christ that we don't need anything else. Forgiveness of sins provided. Eternal security in heaven provided. Unshakable hope provided. Love that satisfies the deepest longing of our souls. God has provided it for us in Christ. 
God has given us the deepest, most life-giving, most heart-lifting contentment by making peace with us through the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is the cure to covetousness. This is the cure to greed and envy. Paul reminds us that, that in the gospel there is great spiritual gain in godliness with contentment. And God has already given us that contentment in Christ. And so Paul, I love it, he gives us a new standard of what we should want when he says, you can see it in your Bibles in verse eight, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. That's a pretty humbling standard of living, isn't it? Paul, what about water? What, a, what about a place to lay my head at night? What about a car to get to work? What about an education for my kids? What, what about all my medical bills? Well, Paul is alluding here to the Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus says that we should not be anxious about what we eat or drink or what we should wear because God knows that we need all of these things. If God clothes the lily of the field and feeds the bird of the air, how much more will he feed and clothe you? Paul is bringing our hearts and minds back to the promises of Jesus that God will provide for you. That's his task. Our task is, is to seek first his kingdom and these things will be added to us. The point Paul is making is that because God has proven himself faithful in all of his promises, chiefly in sending his son to die for us, we can be content in Christ this is the mountaintop of our passage. This is the highlight of what Paul is trying to get across. God has already given us contentment in Jesus, and so our hearts can be at rest. Is your heart at rest tonight? Are you happy with what you have in life? Do you want what you have this evening? Are you happy with your house, your apartment, your family? Or do you want more? Are you happy with your spouse? Or do you look around at others? Are you content with this season of your life? Or do you look to the left and to the right, to your neighbor, your coworker, wanting what they have? We don't have to compare ourselves with others. We don't have to be consumed in climbing the ladder and gaining more stuff, but, but we can be content because Jesus has given us contentment in him. I love what one commentator says about this passage. He says, genuine contentment is not self-sufficiency. The world can be self-sufficient. But genuine contentment is Christ-sufficiency. That's, that's what God does for us in Christ. If you dig deep into the heart of a healthy Christian and you get to the bottom, you will hit a spring of living water that wells up with contentment in Christ. God has already given us the cure to, to covetousness and it's contentment because God has given us everything already in him. 
Well, Paul ends with his third reason why we should cure covetousness with contentment. It's because covetousness destroys your eternal soul. Covetousness destroys your eternal soul. We see this in verses nine and 10. He writes, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul teaches that those who desire to be rich fall. They, they fall. They fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Paul uses strong language here. He says that the desire to be wealthy, just the desire in your heart to be rich causes you to fall into a pit of temptation. And those desires plunge people. Literally, the words mean to cause someone to sink in water, to plunge, to, to drown. And what are they drowning into? Ruin and spiritual destruction. Make no mistake about it. Paul is saying that those who want to be rich start down a path that eventually leads to hell. It's heavy. And it's a warning for us. Not only does covetousness destroy community, but it also destroys your eternal soul. In America, we tend to think about people who want to be rich, who desire to be wealthy, who start from nothing and become millionaires through hard work, entrepreneurship. That's the American dream. But let this sit for just a moment. God's word says that the desire to be rich is like playing with fire. That, that the desire to be rich has spiritual power to lead us away from our Savior. Do you believe that? Paul believed that. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, loving money actually disqualifies you from being an elder. Greed disqualifies a man from being an elder. Just personally, this week, I was like, wow. I don't think that greed is as bad as God thinks it is. On the scale of, of badness, and that's a technical term I'm using, by the way, badness, greed, greed, greed usually isn't that high on my list, but it's high on God's list. Paul helpfully continues and clarifies in verse 10 for us. You can see it. The, he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is important to look closely at what Paul says about the love of money here. He does not say that money is the root of all evil. He does not say that the love of money is the only root of evil. He says that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Money is not evil, but the desire to have lots of money is like a root. And, and once that root goes deep, once it develops, it grows into a 
tree that bears all kinds of poisonous fruit. Paul says that through this craving, some have even wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs, with many griefs. I'm sure we could, we could go around the room tonight and tell stories, maybe with tears in our eyes of those in our lives who have heard the gospel, maybe even claimed to be a Christian and who have walked away because their heart was more in love with money than it was with God. And it, it breaks our hearts because they don't realize that they are destroying their souls with these desires. Loving money is like self-sabotage. Paul, sa- Paul says that it's like piercing your own heart straight through. And so it's as if Paul is, is saying to us tonight that, that we need to rope off our hearts with danger tape. We need to, we need to be careful. We need to be careful that, that we don't love money, that we need to guard our hearts, that there is a tipping point between, uh, there's a tipping point where our love for money can outgrow our love for God. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6. He says, you cannot serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Maybe the Lord has blessed you with money. Next week, Paul will teach wealthy Christians what to do with their money. But this week, our, our passage is, is a heart check. We need to heed this warning tonight. We have to cure covetousness with contentment because loving money can destroy your eternal soul. John Bogle was the founder of the Vanguard Investment Group. And Bogle was Vanguard's CEO for many years. Bogle actually created the first index fund. Needless to say, he was a giant in the investment world. And in one of his books, he tells the story of a billionaire hedge fund manager who threw a party on Shelter Island in New York. And at that party, in attendance was Joseph Heller. Heller was an author who in 1961 had written a very popular novel called Catch-22. Maybe you've read it. The term Catch-22 comes from this novel. Well, at the party, one of Heller's buddies mentioned to Heller that the host of the party, this billionaire hedge fund manager, had made more money in that single day than in the whole history of that Catch-22 novel, which was very popular. But in response, Heller turned to his friend and said, yep, that's true, but I have something that he will never have. Enough. Enough. The heart that is ruled by covetousness says, I want more. But the heart that is ruled by Christ says, I have enough. 
I have enough. I have more than enough. I have all that I need in Christ and in Christ alone. God will provide for me. I don't have to look to another. I am happy and content and want what God has given me. Is your heart content in Christ tonight? When you survey all that the Lord has given you, when you consider your life and your gifts and everything that God has given you, are you happy with what you have? Because God has a cure for our covetous hearts. Yes, covetousness destroys community. Yes, covetousness destroys your eternal soul. But God has given us a contentment in Christ that can be yours tonight if you trust him with your life. If you say tonight, you can have all this world, but give me Jesus. I am content in Christ alone. Let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, all we have is yours. We are stewards. We are borrowers. We are beggars. Would you open the eyes of our hearts to see that you are our greatest treasure? That living a godly life with contentment here in this world is great gain. Help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to guard our hearts, to love what we have in you, and to be a church whose appetite is completely satisfied in Christ alone. In whose name we pray, amen.